you would uh, turn in your Bible this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, I've decided that I'm going to finish up our study on uh, Peter uh, before moving on in the mornings in Luke, and then uh, I'd like to pick up our series on the Psalms that we've been doing in the summertime, um, so hopefully by mid-July we will be, uh, we'll be back on Luke and the, uh, and the Psalms, but I've been... Um, I hope you've been enjoying this, this wonderful letter. Uh, there's great texture to Peter's writings. There's a wonderful tenderness combined with a grittiness of real life. Peter uh, knows what he's talking about. Um, and he's, talk, he's been talking about Christian uh, suffering. It's a very relevant book. He's writing to people who are suffering. Uh, Job says, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Uh, that means that everyone is going to suffer. But Peter is calling us this morning to something that he would call uh, Christian suffering, Christian suffering. And so let's pick up uh, the Word of God, 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God, we understand that no prophet ever wrote by his own initiative, but men were carried along by the Spirit of God. And Peter, carried by the Spirit of God, has penned these words. And we thank you that in them we find divine truth, that you are speaking to us through your word this morning. So we pray that you give us ears to hear, and Lord, I pray that you give me the blessing as I speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Christian Suffering, Christian Suffering. Last week, if, uh, if you remember, if you were here last Sunday evening, uh, we talked about uh, Peter's words in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. We noted that Christians are often surprised when fiery trials uh, come upon us. And um, Tim Keller made the point that American Christians have the worst possible pre-existing condition for suffering. American Christians have the worst possible pre-existing condition uh, to experience suffering. And that's because we have this, these strange American ideas that uh, suffering, there ought to be a law against that, right? It doesn't really have a place in real life, that there are techniques that can fix it, that suffering means something has gone, gone wrong. We don't see any inherent value in suffering. It's something that maybe just simply must be endured, but we don't have a vision for uh, what it could accomplish. And so, so as Americans, we have that experience. And then as American Christians, we, we've often believed the uh, or assumed the lie that if God really loves us deeply, we won't have to suffer. 
It's difficult for us to imagine that, that a loving Heavenly Father who deeply cares for us, if we're doing things right, would still intend that we suffer. And so American Christians are handicapped. I think Keller's like absolutely right when it comes to this topic of suffering. And, uh, and American Christians, one of the reasons that we live with this handicap so easily is because we don't suffer as, as so much of the world does. We, we have life amazingly good. Uh, we talk, you know, jokingly about first world problems. Uh, well, friends, there are such a thing as third world problems and people, brothers and sisters in Christ who live uh, in, in, with those problems every single day and, and second world problems. Uh, people suffer profoundly throughout the world. And so we've been a bit um, insulated from that and so we can live with our handicap. But, but I'm convinced that days of, of trial will come. They come to each of us individually. I believe that, that there are uh, coming t- times of trial for the church of Jesus Christ. And so what Peter uh, commands here is something that we need to get our, wrap our minds around because what he commands is that we rejoice in the trials. Rejoice as you share in Christ's suffering. That's not really on most of our radar screens. When suffering does happen in one form or another, uh, we, we, we tend to complain, we tend to uh, resort to self-pity, uh, sometimes we feel free to question God. Uh, Jesus says many will walk away from the faith altogether, a few will rejoice, and yet that's the command. And so the question I'm asking this morning is, what would make that possible? What would, what would make a person rejoice? And the, and the verb tense here means rejoice and keep on doing it. Keep on rejoicing. What would make a person do that in the midst of suffering? And Peter gives us several facts here that we have to know, things that we need to be convinced of and we need to understand if we're going to experience the fiery trials that God is going to bring, if we're going to experience those things and... and uh, Rejoice, as Peter commands. Uh, we're going to have to. We're going to have to be convinced of the things that Peter talks about. And so, I given we have a few, uh, four points here this morning. If you have an outline, you can follow along. Things that um, help us understand God's purposes. And so, the first point here is that suffering isn't an accident; it's a plan. It's not an accident, it's a plan. As Americans, we are convinced that if suffering happens, it's accidental. Something went wrong. It wasn't supposed to be like that. Somebody messed up. There's a lawsuit maybe awaiting to happen. It's so difficult for us to to think about suffering as a plan. But that's what the Bible says. It's not an accident, it's the plan. Peter says in chapter 2, 21, to this you have been called. In verse 19 in our text, uh, those who suffer according to God's will. God wills suffering. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not the, uh, that something went wrong. It's, it is the plan. <laughs> that is not how Peter used to see things. If you remember when Peter was following Jesus, he's a, he's a young man. And uh, Jesus, 
explained to his disciples very specifically that, that he was on his way to Jerusalem and that he was going to go there and he was going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the leaders and they were going to put him to death. And you remember how Peter responded to that. Peter took him aside, Matthew 16, 22. Hey, you guys, I mean, <laughs> the audacity of Peter to take Jesus aside. Lord, I need a, just a word with you a minute. And then he rebukes him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. You can't be talking like that. Right in front of the guys. You see, in Peter's mind, the whole point of being Messiah was you don't have to suffer. I mean, and look what Jesus was doing. He was the answer to suffering, the repudiation for suffering. He healed sick people. He, he cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. So, so why this crazy talk about Jesus? Peter has just said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And now Jesus is, I don't know, just sort of lost his way here a bit. Talking about suffering and being killed. And so Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. What does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes Peter. And I'll bet Jesus' rebuke um, was a lot more stern and a lot more stunning than Peter's had been. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? You are a hindrance to me. You're a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was thinking as men think. He was not, he did not have his mind on the ways of God and, and the purposes of God. And Jesus did every day. And Jesus knew that he had come not to serve not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew why he was here. He was here precisely for this suffering that God had ordained for him. For this reason I've come to this hour, he says in his high priestly prayer. And Jesus so he understands that the plan involves suffering. And that's not just for him, it's for his disciples. And so Jesus says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Your cross. And if any man, right, if you will not lose your life, you can't, you, can't, you can't have it. If you want to gain your life now, you're going to lose it forever. If you lose it now, you gain it forever. He told them, they're going to hate you and they're going to persecute you and they're going to say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake and they're going to drag you in front of governors and kings and, and they're going to put you to death thinking that they're doing my will. He promised it. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And Paul caught this message and passes it on in Acts 14, 22, as he tells people, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. So you see, suffering isn't strange. It's not an accident. It's the plan. <coughs> now, if you are in a, in a time of, of suffering, that, that might not seem very helpful. Or if you're anticipating suffering, how does, it, how does it help? In fact, doesn't it make it worse? Well, let me give you an illustration. I think that, that helps us have a little better perspective. What if a, what if a man um, wearing a white coat walked up to you on the street and jabbed you with a needle? 
I think you'd be shocked. I think you'd be alarmed. I think you would feel like you've been assaulted. And yet, isn't it true that every day people pick up the phone and make appointments to have men do exactly that, either to themselves or worse, to their kids, right? They call the dentist or they call the doctor and they make an appointment and they know full well that when they show up there, the man is going to stick a needle into them. And sometimes it's going to involve significant discomfort and then they will pay the man for the privilege, (laughs) right? Now, why in the world would you do that? I've been asking that question for a long time. And it's because, you see, the dentist or the doctor has a plan. It, it's part of a treatment for a disease. And the plan makes all the difference. It, it changes the very same experience, being stuck with a needle, from an assault that you are shocked and alarmed by to a treatment that you are willing to pay for. The fact that there's a plan makes all the difference in the world. God has a plan. Samuel Rutherford, an old Puritan, says, if God had told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world and then had told me that he should begin by crippling me in arm or limb and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. Sometimes God's plan doesn't seem to make sense. And yet, he says, how is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed, dark room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their meager light, and you wished to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throw open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. You see, the suffering is, is not an accident. It's God maybe blowing out some lamps, and they were good lamps, and, you know, or God doing things that we don't understand. And yet, the Bible says that it's, it's the plan. It's God's will that we suffer. And that's a fact that we simply have to get our minds around and accept and think like Christians and not Americans. God's purpose is that we suffer. It's His plan. But because there's a plan, means that we can, we can have some hope. We're not victims. It's, secondly, it's not an obstacle to joy. It, it, it's the path to joy. Peter says in, in 13, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Uh, God's saints throughout the ages have testified of the blessings that are associated with suffering as Christians. Now, suffering as Christians, I think Peter has specifically in mind the persecution that is already beginning to be experienced and will be increasingly experienced. And we will, I believe, unless God intervenes in a dramatic way, we will experience increasing persecution. But I think to suffer as a Christian means all the suffering that we endure in this world, hanging on to Christ as those uh, bearing the name of Christ, suffering in faith. We suffer as Christians. And Peter says that we can rejoice there because there are some of God's richest blessings are associated with experiences of suffering. Piper says this, I've never heard a mature saint say, you know, the deepest and rarest and most satisfying joys in my life have come in times of extended ease and earthly comfort. Nobody says that. Which 
What they say is what Samuel Rutherford said when he was put in the cellars of affliction. Affliction, He said the king keeps his best wine there. Spurgeon said they, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. And Peter wants to just highlight some of these rare pearls. He talks about the experience of, of fellowship with Christ. And so you, we share in Christ's sufferings. What does that mean to share in Christ's sufferings? And, and how would that produce continual rejoicing? Because you see it in Acts chapter 5 when the, when the, the uh, apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin and they're told you need to stop talking about Jesus. And they say, well, we, you're going to judge for yourself. Do we obey God or do we obey man? We can't stop talking. So they decided just, just to beat them with the, with the flog and the apostles leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer with Christ. How does, how does that work? What's the dynamic there? Again, just a, a worldly illustration. Football training camp is going to begin in about a month or so. And uh, young men will, will endure great physical discomfort and strain and even put their bodies at risk. Why? Because they want to be part of the team. They want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. And, and, they, and they have a vision in their mind. They've got a picture in their mind of, of the... Uh, the crowd on game day, and they, they want to be part of that group that goes out and, and engages in this contest and uh, receives the honor and the accolades and the applause from the crowd. Well, that's the dynamic of Christian suffering. You see, when Jesus says, rejoice when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, the reason we can be rejoiced and be glad is because they beat the dickens out of the, the prophets before you. Which means it seems a little strange. But you see, what Jesus is saying is that's how they persecuted the prophets. You're on the right team. You're in the right game. You belong to the right Lord and God. This is, the, this is where you want to be. What else is worth living for if not the cause of Jesus Christ? And so the apostles, you see, when, they, when they're, when they're uh, given the privilege of suffering with Jesus... Bearing his name, it just feels like, it feels like honor. Who am I that I should be allowed to be identified with Christ and, and that I should be allowed into that sacred fellowship of sharing in his suffering? Something that God delights in with such abounding joy. That's why they rejoiced. Who, who are we that we should become displays of the splendor of God. And so there's, a, there's an experience in suffering as we suffer as Christians that, of fellowship with Jesus. And, and, and you can't buy it. You can't read it in a book. It happens when you suffer in, in faith and you lean on the Lord and you find him faithful. And, and those who've been through the experience would not trade it for the world. I remember talking to Jonathan Falk who was in prison for about a month with the church in Eritrea. And he has a hard time talking about it because it was so sacred. It was so unbelievably precious. That's what Peter says is given to those who suffer as we suffer with Christ. And, and, and there's an assurance of future glory here. So rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The, the apostles had this deep understanding that the, the, the way this works is that 
the suffering is now and the glory is forever. But the suffering is a necessary part of that path. So Paul says, Romans 8, 17, if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. Now, there's a lot of Christians who don't wish that verse were not in the Bible. I wish that verse were not in the Bible. If we suffer with him, then we will glorify it. Isn't there a different way? Well, Paul doesn't think so. Peter seems not to think so. And yet, so you see, that's, that's the path. That's the way it works. That, that suffering isn't an obstacle. It's, it's the road. But there's great promises attached to it. That Peter says we can, we can trust that there's future glory. Again, that's where we need to be thinking with our minds set on what is yet to come. Third, it's not punishment, it's purification. Verse 17 and 18, and I, don't, I could spend a lot of time on this. I, I don't intend to this morning. But Peter points out it's time for the, if it, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What? Just the, the critical thought here is that God is up to something in suffering. And we don't know all the ways of God. But we know that fiery trials are part of his purposes. This last week, I don't know if you saw, there were 17 Yazidi believers, young girls, burned alive in the town square by ISIS soldiers because the girls refused to give their bodies to these men. And so the question is, why would God allow that to happen? 19 girls who just want to be honorable, who don't want to deny their faith. And all these families who are in this intense anguish today. So if there's a, if there's a God in heaven who loves his children, why does that happen? And I don't have all the answers to why God allows that to happen. But I, but I do want us to see that Peter is talking about just such things. Don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. Fiery trials. Devastating. Heartbreaking. Rip your life and soul apart sorts of trials. Don't be surprised when those things happen. And what Peter says is that it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So there's a sober reminder to God's people here that you see God is, is up to something. Judgment here does not mean condemnation. The word can mean condemnation. It can mean the decisions that God makes. And here it means evaluation, testing, proving, trying. You see, God's presence, Peter understands, is a holy fire that hasn't changed. And fire does things when it comes into contact with elements. It'll either purify it or it'll consume it. And Peter believes that God is, is in the, in the uh, he's, he's purifying his people. That's, he's, Malachi chapter 3 speaks about this, that Jesus comes with a refiner's fire. And so when God comes to his people, he comes with that intent to purify us. Piper again says, believers pass through the testing fire of God's judgment, not because he hates us, but because he loves us and wills our purity. God hates sin so much and loves his children so much that he will spare us no pain to rid us of what he hates. That doesn't mean that if you're not right now suffering, um, let me say it this way, it doesn't mean that if you suffer intensely, you're an extra sort of kind of sinner. It just means that 
We have to have a category that God's intent for us is holiness now because he intends us for great, great glory and joy to come. That, that, that he's, he's not a tame God in that sense. He's about something awful. Um, David, David Chupp is here. So good to see our brother here with us. David's going through various cancer treatments, awful cancer treatments, awful. Why would you do that? Because there's a, there's a goal in mind, you see? And, and, and cancer is a radical, a radical disease that sometimes takes radical uh, approaches. Well, sin is a radical disease. It doesn't come out easily. We don't, we don't sanctify just sort of quickly with a few uh, phrases and thoughts and ideas. Sanctification is bloody work. It's, it's hard work. It's painful work. And yet God is committed to it, and God is, it knows exactly how best to accomplish it. And, and so often, trials, are it's exactly the right medicine. So that means that the Christian life cannot be easy then. You see, it must be difficult, and that's what Peter says. If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the godly? When he says here, are scarcely saved, he, he, he's, he, the, the Greek word here means uh, saved with difficulty. It just means that it's hard to be saved. It's hard to be sanctified. It's not easy. Remember what Jesus said. Right? The way is, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. Again, we have brothers and sisters around the world who experience this in, in Middle East and communist countries in very, very painful ways. But it's hard for us. It's hard for us in a whole variety of ways. We need, to be, we need just to be reminded again that our God is a consuming fire. Old hymn writer said, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? If we have this, this, this sickness called sin, praise God we're justified. Praise God we're being sanctified. But sanctification, it's painful. It's hard. And there's a sober warning, a, a solemn warning here to the unconverted. What will, ha- what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What Peter's just saying is if God is so serious about sin it, that, that he's willing to cause his own children great, awful pain to purify them of that sin, then what will that holy God do in his seriousness, in his holiness to people who've never repented of their sin? What will become of you if you're not converted? What will become of you if you don't have a Jesus who's justified you, if you don't have uh, the Spirit of God who's at work sanctifying you, if you are just this morning in your sin, what will become of you? What will that holy God do to you? That's the question of your life. And Peter answers that question with devastating clarity in 2 Thessalonians, Paul does, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, God is just, he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Friend, you do not need to question what God will do to you if you're not converted. The Bible is explicitly clear. If you do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be shut out from the presence of God. You will be shut out from the glory of his might and punished with everlasting destruction. That's the Bible truth. And so Scripture would appeal to you today to be converted, to confess your sin. 
These are serious things. Eternity, you see, is on the line. Finally and quickly, suffering is not a test of your ability. It's a testimony to his. It doesn't feel like it's a test of our ability. Peter tells us in chapter, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, when, when I think about persecution, um, I, man, I look, at, I look at, at people who are burned alive because of their faith and people who are tortured. And, um, and I, I don't know. I look at myself and think, I don't, I don't think I could do that. I, don't, I, have, I have no confidence in my courage. I hate pain. I hate it with a passion. I don't, I don't, I don't have any confidence that I, that I could endure that. Well, that's why I'm so thankful for what Peter says here, that we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator. You see the disciples, here are these young men. And Jesus says, I'm going to leave you, and they're going to do all this horrible stuff to you. I'm, I'm sending you out as lambs to the wolves. Um, I'm sending you out to be persecuted. I'm sending you out to be be tried, tormented and, and put to death for my sake. And, uh, and then he says, don't be afraid. Well, how, how could you not be afraid? Because I will never leave you or forsake you because my Holy Spirit will teach you exactly what to say. And you will, there's going to be a boldness. There's going to be a might. You're going to glorify my name. You're going to be okay. And that's exactly what happens. And so in Acts chapter 5, you find Peter, the man who was quivering in front of a little servant girl who said, don't you know this Jesus guy? And he's calling condemnation on his head because of his fear. Now he's in front of the Sanhedrin with no fear at all. What made the difference? Well, we know it made the difference. It was a cross and a resurrection. Seeing the Son of God die for sinners like him and seeing then the, being restored by Jesus Christ. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he says to the ladies, go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. You see, friends, the God who calls you to suffer and the God has ordained that you're going to suffer and he knows exactly how he's going to accomplish that. He's given you his very own son to suffer for you, to redeem you, to be with you, to never leave you. This son was not only put to death, he was raised as your victor. He was raised as your deliverer. Death now has no claim or hold on you. Paul says, the life I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The God who orders your life is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who directs every step is a God who has loved you and given himself for you. He knows your name. He's taken your eternal joy as his personal cause. And he promises you, this God who's given you Jesus Christ, he promises you. He'll never leave you. And, and, and even more, he will use every bit of your suffering for his glory and your eternal good. Keller says, God only does what we would ask him to do if we knew all that he knows. The God who says, be still and know that I am God, is, his name is Jesus. And so when Peter says, entrust yourself to your faithful creator, he's thinking of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who made this whole world, who has the power to speak in galaxies spin into being. This Jesus is not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He knows what he is about. And so let's entrust ourselves 
to him. Let's pray. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I raise my flickering torch to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promises not vain that morn shall tearless be. God in heaven, thank you for the love that will not let us go. Thank you for the rainbow promise in the rain of our trials. Thank you for the confidence that the promise is not vain and mourn shall tearless be. And so, Lord, give us the grace to suffer as Christians, to suffer with Jesus, to suffer in faith. And, Lord, give us the grace to stand, to rest, to trust until we see him face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.